We come before you, Father, um, imperfect, weak, um, forgetful. So many things that display the unworthiness of us in this moment. But we trust that you may forgive us. And so we ask for it. And Lord, we ask that you would help us remember what you've done and who you are. That you would inform all of our life, all of our thoughts, all of our desires. And that you would further inform and correct and teach those in these moments. For you have spoken and it's to your word that we look. So let these meditations be acceptable in your sight. Use them by your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We uh, take a bit of a turn in the Sermon on the Mount. We've kind of moved from the personal, what it looks like to be happy as a citizen in the kingdom, what it looks like to exist here in this world in this kingdom as a citizen of another. And we looked at the fact that in this place, under the law of God, there is a righteousness that is foreign to us, that is only found in Christ the law that he perfectly fulfills, the law that he perfectly personifies. And then again, we're found that everything about this sermon has to do with Jesus and is directly opposed to who we are in human nature. But yet there's hope, right? There's hope. There's a purpose for this sermon that requires us to look outside of the law, which is God's intention all along, and to look to what brings us life. And that's Jesus and the perfection that he exists in. You know, I love to read the Bible and look for the big pictures. It's, it's hard work sometimes to dig in and get into the minutia and take a scalpel and, and really uh, cut open all these things and go deep. But the big pictures often inform us of how we need to look at the little parts or the deeper things. And one thing that I notice when I read through the scriptures, especially as you're looking at wisdom literature in Psalms and Proverbs, is that the fool is often characterized as the one who is um, harmful to others. Harmful in speech, harmful in deed, harmful in conduct, whatever the case may be, he is not a benefit to others. And a lot of that sometimes is brought about by the human emotion of anger, which has been perverted by the fall or sin. And so we are rarely exercising or living in the emotion of anger in a righteous way. And so we foolishly exercise anger in a way that hurts people. Whether they deserve it or not, we, we don't 
fully understand how to deal with this emotion like God does. Anger is a natural response to sin. We understand that. Um, If you have sin, there is going to be some anger, namely the anger, the righteous anger of God, which condemns sin for what it is, a direct offense to him and his righteousness. But then enters in our human flesh, and we are using and responding to all things in a fallen type of way. But throughout the scriptures, we are being communicated to by the Lord to be a benefit to each other. We even read in Psalm 103 that the Lord is slow to anger, right? And that he exercises compassion from generation to generation. That uh, even in Ezekiel, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That David is, feels more than free to appeal to him throughout the Psalms as, as a God who forgives and has mercy and grace. He feels confident to approach him in the depths of his human depravity because he knows him. And if the scriptures call God slow to anger, and God is perfect and righteous and not at all affected or have any sort of relationship with sin, then you and I, who are definitely eternally affected by sin and deal with it every day, should really pay attention to how quick we get there. For some of you, your natural disposition is is really far from anger. You're just kind of naturally a happy person, and it's hard to get you to that point. For some of you, this is kind of like the first response that you go to, anger. Whatever the case may be, we all know, understand what it means to be angry and to harm other people or to be angry and desire the harm of others. So only by the Spirit of God, only does Jesus show us how to temper this, how to be slow to anger and how to put the brakes on such a thing. And I think it's the first emotion that he deals with, or the first part of, uh, of the letter of the law that he deals with here as he moves to the interpersonal relationships that we all are going to have in this world, one with another, because it's the most harmful. And as we deal with each other, it can be the most um, offensive one to God. Because you see, really, just starting with Cain and Abel, what anger can do is kind of birthed through jealousy and covetousness, and that gave way to anger, and what anger gave way to for Cain? Murder. Now, I digress a little bit, because what's interesting about that is God's response to Cain. The, The punishment didn't necessarily fit the crime. God let him live. God was even merciful to him in a way. And so if we see if God can be that patient, that slow to anger, that should inform how we approach others. If you have been informed and, and 
gone through the new birth by the gospel, which basically proclaims that instead of being uh, angry with you, God was angry toward your sin and placed that wrath on Jesus and displayed to you grace and mercy. If he was able to forgive you, to slow down enough to say, okay, let's deal with that part and save that sinner for myself. If he's able to do that, then the rehearsal of the gospel in your mind should allow you to walk in a righteousness that is extremely slow to anger and begins to have your first response to everyone else in grace and mercy. At the end of this, we're going to learn how to temper that and how to, in fact, rarely look at each other in anger. We're going to see that also there is a time for an anger that meets the righteous justice of God at some points. But most of the time, that's not the case. But before we get into that, let's establish, before we forget, as we make this transition here in this sermon, let's establish what the law does for us, okay? Romans 7, this is Paul. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So as Jesus is coming in to explain, um, in fact, one of the Ten Commandments here, thou shalt not murder, he is taking it to a degree that the Jews and his followers up to this point had never gone. And if he's going to display to us what exceeding righteousness looks like, that which far exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, then he is going to show us that in this sermon. And it, and it should leave us undone, because immediately we all find ourselves guilty of what Jesus says breaking the law in this way looks like. And why I preface Paul here in Romans 7 is because the law is fulfilled in Jesus, and for us, it displays to us the unrighteousness. Paul understands when the, when the law was, was kind of shown to him in its clarity that, oh, I broke it. Therefore, I'm a dead man, condemned to die. I, I stand dead in my sins and trespasses, something that he communicates in Ephesians 2. And he saw that through God explaining or giving the law or what is righteousness. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he's the fulfillment of the law and he perfectly explains the perfection of the law, then you have every reason to understand that in the law you die because you break it. Nobody's going to stand under this law and be righteous. And that's not the intent. Because of who you are and your human nature, the law will kill you. But like Paul says in Galatians, it's a guardian, right? Until you come to understand what it points out. And then you take a hold of the grace and mercy of God, freed 
from the penalty of the law and free to live in a new righteousness, which is his. So in looking to the one who fulfills all righteousness, what does that look like? How might somebody like Jesus fulfill the law? If, if it's not us, if we can't look to human examples, if we have to look outside of ourselves, then what's it actually look like? And Jesus is going to spend a while here going through lots of things to show them what righteousness looks like. So before we get into these sections for the next, next several weeks, remember uh, the summation of the law that Jesus gave in Mark 12. Jesus answered and said the most important, when they're, when they're asking about the most important law, Jesus says the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So there's the law. You fulfill that. Love God with all your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. You did it. The only problem is we didn't do it, but he did. So, beginning with that first commandment, if you love God, then what will that look like in that second great commandment? Especially if you meditate on the fact that everyone else that you see, everyone that you see is created in the image of God. How are you supposed to value that? If you love God, then won't you love those things that are created by him in his image? Or do you somehow separate the two? These things have to be a constant meditation to us as we deal with the world and the people around us. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, discusses the gospel in this way. The glorious possibility that is offered us by the gospel of Christ is development as children of God and growing unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, you can learn to look at your fellow man as an image bearer of your beloved God. And in the gospel, you know, you're not only reminded, but you're equipped to do so. The gospel is, is the fuel to move forward in that. So we're discussing an impossible righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, and on the other hand, we're discussing how to follow Jesus in that perfect righteousness. Now, we all understand, and he understands, we're not going to follow him perfectly. We're going to veer off the path once in a while. And the good thing is, he's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So what's he going to do? He's going to grab us by the shirt collar and bring us back on. By the conviction of the Holy Spirit, by the conviction of these things, that are taught, that are remembered by the presence of the Spirit, reminding you of them, and then you will, hopefully, if you're a child of God, repent, understanding that God will forgive you, get back on track. Grow in this Christ-likeness. That's what he's doing. Now, I told you last week that he will have a holy, spotless, blameless bride presented to his son, and he will accept nothing else. So, Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The way that you interact with your fellow man will be um, tantamount 
to your love of God. If I say I love God, John says in 1 John, and hate my brother, then the love of God is not in me. You can't move from the vertical to the horizontal um, separate from one another. Your love of God is tied to how you love each other. So, referring back to last week and how Jesus came to fulfill the law, he fulfilled the law that we'd be free to know God. The, the, the righteous requirement of the law was met in Jesus. We became that righteousness because he freely gave it to us. So now we can know God as Father. And then, it doesn't stop there because he gave us his spirit that we might abide with him. So it's not like we know God is like, okay, yeah, we know who he is. We know what he did, you know, moving on. No, we, we live with him. John 17, right? Or John uh, 15. He promises to abide with us if we abide in his word, which is him. And he gave us his spirit to do that, to walk in that, to desire that. We abide with him that we might know him more, serve him more purely, reflect his glory, that others might see him, become more like his son, taste all that is good, etc., etc., etc. The whole point of now following Jesus in righteousness is no longer to be justified so that we escape the wrath of God. Jesus took care of that on the cross. The reason that we follow him in the power of the Spirit and in truth is so that we might not only know him in the sense of being familiar with him, but know him intimately and live with him. His desire from the beginning is to dwell with his creation and for them to dwell with him in his glory. So everything we do now moves us into that. Martin Lloyd-Jones again was speaking to his congregation about the uh, six weeks leading up to the Passion Week, which is known as Lent. And he was cautioning them on looking at Lent as a mere religious exercise or anything uh, in, that we endeavor to do good as a mere religious exercise. He says, I may stop smoking, I may stop drinking or gambling during these six weeks or at any other period. But if during that time my poverty of spirit is not greater my sense of weakness is not deepened. My hunger and thirst after God and righteousness is not greatly increased that I might just as well not have done it at all. You know, this is something you see uh, from some of us when we go to conferences or retreats or something and you come back and you say, okay, I'm going to do this, whatever it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast uh, two days a week or I'm going to read my Bible at this time every day. Or I'm going to stop smoking or whatever it is. Okay? If it's just so that you can beat the habit, you're, you're not looking towards why those things need to happen in your life. If it is for knowing God, then you're on track. If it is for growing closer to Him, then it's on track. If it is for removing all of these unnecessary things 
that, that interrupt your relationship with God, then you're on track. In other words, if it is focused on him, then you're getting it. But if we're following the law just because you should, you know, that's, ne- you know, that's never been a motivation for me, g- good and bad, in all things in life. But if it allows an uninter- uninterrupted communion and intimacy with God, to become more like his son, to reflect more of his glory that others might see him and give him glory, if it bears the fruit of not just blessing somebody in some certain way, but if it bears the fruit of bringing somebody to God or to see the glory of Jesus, then whatever religious exercise you're undertaking is good. So it's got to be focused on him. So let's get into the text finally. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. There's something interesting here to note. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said of old. This is an interesting side note, but do you understand that the Israelites lost their ability to read and speak Hebrew as a nation during the deportation to Babylon? That there's a whole generation that lost that language, certainly be able to read it at least. So most of the time they're using Aramaic or Greek in first century Palestine, which means what? They have to rely on their teachers to tell them what the law says. And that can be a problem. That is why you are extremely blessed to live in a literate society and time of history and to have ample copies of the Bible at your disposal. Because you don't have to trust me. You get to read the Bible for yourselves and decide if it's true. Can you think of a more recent period in history where this happened and the church was greatly harmed? That's how the Reformation came about. Because not only were people illiterate, but uh, their teachers had hijacked the gospel and perverted it for personal gain. And then you have great men who translate the Bible into German and English, and the people finally get the word of God in their hands, and guess what happened? Reformation. We wouldn't exist today if that didn't happen. So what did they hear, these people of old? When the Ten Commandments came down to Israel, what did they hear? You shall not murder. Now there's some general principle in this, right? You murder, you will be judged. Ultimate judgment, um, that could be either temporally, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, capital punishment or speaking to a greater degree, possibly eternally. Just one of the symptoms that reveals a sinful heart, which you will be judged for if you don't repent. Exodus 21, 23 through 25, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So that's kind of the basic 
principles of the law, right? Life for life. This was a way to deter Israel from doing these things. You harm somebody's uh, person, that's your punishment. But, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So it's very important in these next few passages to understand what's happening when Jesus says, I say to you. He's establishing his authority over and through the law. He's explaining to you what an exceeding righteousness looks like. And he takes the authority upon himself to do so. And we looked last week, he is that, that greater prophet that's going to rise up in Deuteronomy 18. He's that greater prophet that we're supposed to listen to. And the righteousness that he speaks about goes to the cellular level, goes into the heart. Because one thing that we have to learn about God from the beginning is what he's tolerant of and what he's not tolerant of. What he, what he accepts and what he does not accept. He does not accept unclean hearts. He sees unlike we do. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, uh, to preface that passage of Scripture, uh, the Lord has removed his favor and anointing from Saul, the king, and is, it is getting ready to place it on David. So Jesse, David's father, brings before him some of his oldest sons. And Samuel's assuming, like, okay, I'm seeing... Um, uh, the Lord's anointing here. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's just one brief example and discussion that tells us that the Lord is not looking to what you do outwardly. The judgment and stuff is coming before that where sin is birthed in the heart. Because Jesus said it's, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unrighteous or righteous. Because it makes clear what's in there. So the standard, the exceeding righteousness of that commandment you shall murder is that don't even be angry with your brother. Some of your translations will add um, angry without cause, and some of them don't have them. The earliest manuscripts, the one closest to the original writings, don't have without cause listed in there. Some of the newer ones do. So let's just take both. Um, somebody mentioned to, the, to me this week that uh, you always have cause for being angry. The question is whether it's justified or unjustified. So let's omit the qualifier without cause. Anger in the household of faith, because he's talking about your brother here, brother or sister. Anger in the household of faith is particularly offensive to God. It is a contempt or desire for destruction of some sort, leaving no room for reconciliation. 
And we're going to get into that. If you live in the household of faith, you live in the household of faith because reconciliation came to you while you were a sinner, while you were offensive to God. So even though God had just cause not to forgive you, God did. And we'll see that in the parable of the unforgiving servant at the end. So it's offensive in the household of faith to exercise anger, which Jesus said is, is breaking the law of committing murder. With the qualifier, angry without cause, I would only say that righteous anger is usually only expressed righteously by God. That we will find any way we can to justify how angry we are. We will make up every excuse and justify all the anger that we feel towards someone or something just so that we can enjoy, which is a sick way of saying it, enjoy that emotion of anger. Or, or seem to make ourselves more righteous than that person that we're angry at, especially that brother or sister. So with or without the qualifier, anger is hardly a righteous emotion. Now, you and I can all agree on when anger is good, when it mirrors God's righteous anger. And usually, the best way to see righteous anger is to be angry with your own anger. You see what I'm saying? Be angry with your own unrighteousness. If you've read that little book that I highly recommend, Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney, one thing that he teaches us to do in that book is when you come across the psalm that where David is calling for wrath and fire to consume his enemies, and in light of uh, the ministry of reconciliation of the gospel, how do, we do, how do we pray those prayers, right? We should be praying for the salvation of our enemies. We should bless our enemies, Jesus says. So what do we do with that? Direct that toward your sin, he says. Pray that the, the, the destruction of your personal sin would come. Be angry there first. And I found that if you're angry with your unrighteousness, if you're um, upset with your impurity, which would mean you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, then it's a lot easier to deal with others, right? Because what are you doing? You're obeying the principle of Jesus to remove that, that log from your eye. So then you see in your brother's eye a speck. And you're more gracious and careful in dealing with that. Paul says in Romans 12, a chapter that we're memorizing right now, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The opportunity that you have in a world that is really good at hating 
hating each other, even over, their, over great minutiae. I mean, how many, every week there's a, a story in the news about somebody who killed somebody else because of road rage. You know, I mean, it's just rampant. So how do you, how do you counteract that? By mimicking or mirroring the emotions of your father being slow to anger. You cut me off in traffic. You're a little slow in the line. So, I, I've been forgiven of breaking every letter of the law. So the fact that you are offending me by your slowness or your ignorance or whatever needs to be put in perspective of that. He says in verse 22, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Maybe some of your translations um, translates that word insult as raka, which means worthless, empty-headed, unimportant. Whoever labels a brother that way is liable to the council, which would be in this point in time, the Sanhedrin. It's a compilation of Sadducees and Pharisees. You'll recognize them from the uh, arrest and trial of Jesus, in which they brought forward all sorts of false witnesses to say false things about Jesus. You'll recognize them in Acts as those who threatened Peter and John for proclaiming the gospel, tell them not to, have them beaten. He's simply saying here, if, if you deem a brother or sister as unimportant and worthless and empty-headed, if you have that much contempt for them so that you don't value them, then you are rightly to be judged. Rightly to be judged. That's not the heart that God's people have. You know, this plays right along with what I wrote about in our uh, fighter verses this week. You outdo showing... Uh, honor to one another, or in other words, be the first to proclaim the value of each other. Be the first to tell people how important each member is to the body. Because when they see your love for one another, they'll give glory to God. And an attitude of contempt, aside from the New Testament teaching of reconciliation and seeking others' good before our own, is not in keeping step with the ministry of the Messiah and the redemptive purposes and heart of God. It's just not tolerated here. He just doesn't accept it. An unrighteous anger towards a brother is not acceptable. So much so, look verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's telling us that reconciliation is so important that it's preemptive to worship. So before you even bring a gift into the church, a.k.a. the altar, before you do any of that, Make sure that you are exercising the ministry of reconciliation. And this is speaking to the person who has offended somebody else. So it becomes really important to recognize our sin. 
to recognize our offensiveness to other people. To be the first one to run to that brother or sister and repent. That's why Peter tells husbands to live understandably with your wives so that your prayers aren't hindered. He will have unity in his home, in his body. And he is declaring that that is of first importance before you're even going to come here and hear worship him. Because you're going to be hypocritical at that point. If you've offended a brother or sister and act like nothing happened and come in here and pretend to love God and worship God, you're lying. You're worshiping in vain. He knows. You're not tricking him. You're tricking other people to make him think you're maybe holy and righteous and pious and devout. You're not tricking God. He doesn't accept that kind of worship. But it's, it's really important that we first understand where reconciliation is most powerfully seen and most aptly to be desired, to be reconciled to God. If we don't understand that, first and foremost, we can't be reconciled to each other. There was one basic truth that I kind of innately understood when I became a Christian was that I never loved anybody before. I was just so aware of the fact that once I came to terms with God's love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, I realized I had never expressed that type of love to anybody. I'd never been reconciled to people like that. You just sweep things under the rug and move on. That's what you normally do. But then to understand the reconciliation with God, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here's where it should really hit you between the eyes. We're the offensive party. God is the offended party. And who took the initiative in reconciling? God. <laughs> he, he initiated that conversation first. He went to great lengths to make sure that we knew we could be reconciled to him. Which, which also, brothers and sisters who have been offended does not allow us to be excused from seeking that out just like the one who offended us. I can remember a few examples in my life where the Spirit uh, convicted me of this and wouldn't let it go. I'm the offended party. They should come to me. Well, that's not what God did. He came. And he made sure that I knew that despite me, he loved me. Reconciliation's open through Jesus. Come on. 
So you've got to be ready there first. And hopefully the offensive party will come. A spirit of repentance and forgiveness will characterize his people. He will not tolerate anything else. You look at the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and should not have had mercy on your fellow servant and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do that to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You profane the gospel when you do not forgive. You proclaim that the gospel is not valuable. That you don't love God when you don't forgive. You, you can never go to the extremes of having to forgive like he has. Never. And if you keep that in your mind, then that will empower you and remind you how to approach individuals in this world. Let me read the rest of this passage so we have this all in context here. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have to understand, <laughs> there is a debt that we can't afford to pay. And this parable in Matthew 18 tells it very well. He's not coming out till he pays the debt. Bad news, we can't pay the sin debt that we incur. Absolutely not. So if you don't understand forgiveness because you maybe have not been forgiven, then you're not getting out of jail. Out of the eternal punishment of God. So if you understand forgiveness because you've been forgiven, then you will do likewise. He won't tolerate anything else. The church will be characterized in this way, which should put our anger then in perspective. It should be so rare and not directed towards each other. Charles Spurgeon said, anger is short madness, like the British like to say crazy, say mad. The less we do when we go mad, the better for everybody, and the less we go mad, the better for ourselves. You know, Throughout the scriptures, it just never does anything good. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You ever have an argument with your spouse, and you think he or she is so wrong. They've done, they're just stupid over this right now. I'm right. They're going to have to face my wrath. Does that ever work out well? Guys. No. So if you can remember the slowness of anger that God shows towards you, the soft word of conviction that he brings at the right point in time that changes everything for you and brings you to repentance, you must be patient and kind and gentle with each other. And there's going to be fruit there. 
You never win an argument. Anybody ever told you that? You don't win. But if you look to the Lord, maybe you can be fruitful aside from that argument. And exceeding righteousness that we're, that we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount is void of unrighteous anger. Reconciliation is a redemptive quality of redeemed people. Christians are not murderous, angry people because we exist as forgiven people. So here's how to not be angry with your brother. Ephesians 6.12 We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you remember that something is ailing your brother or sister when you're offended by them? Something is hurting them? Something's bothering them? There's something they don't understand? There's people or forces in their life that are really heavy upon them? You do, you do battle in, in the heavenlies. You don't do battle with each other. Which should make you really slow to anger until you figure out what that thing is. Like you really pa- it makes you really patient with brothers and sisters. Because who do you think would love to stir up strife here? If they're going to know us by our love for one another and give glory to God, who do you think who likes to uh, blind the mind of unbelievers from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who do you think is going to love to stir up strife here? Satan. So if you want to follow him, come stir up strife. If you want to follow Jesus, be reconciled to each other. And you're, you, you are not a righteous person if you have ever been angry with her brother or sister. It proclaims your unrighteousness. So, I stress over and over again as we close here, you must remember and look to Jesus. How does he deal with you? Read it. How does he speak to you? How does he describe himself? How does he initiate reconciliation? How does he value that? Deal with each other in that way. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called what? Sons and daughters of God. I pray you'd respond to him, and then we'll stand and sing.